0: Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse by verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be part one of a study where we'll be looking at Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 12. So grab your Bible, sit back and open your hearts and minds as we study the word of God together. As we continue our long journey through the book of Romans, we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 14, so you can turn there in your Bibles. In the previous study, we gave a bit of an introduction to the teaching that Paul gives us in chapter 14, and we kind of looked at this teaching from a macro point of view and looked at some of the implications of it. For his immediate point, Paul is apparently addressing some contention that was occurring in the Roman church between the various cultures who attended that church. A summary of the issues that Paul is addressing can be found in the first nine verses of the chapter, so let's read those to get things started. We'll be reading Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 9. Quote, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living." Unquote. Apparently. There was some quarreling, as Paul puts it, in the Roman Church regarding various, as Paul says, disputable matters. There were two categories of these disputable matters. The first concerned food and what one ate. The second concerned regarding certain days as sacred. Concerning the food, those who were not willing to eat everything are characterized as having a weak faith. And they were judging those who did not restrict their diet those who were willing to eat anything and everything were treating the others with contempt. So as far as the dissension and quarreling goes, there was blame to go around on all sides. Though Paul doesn't tell us directly, presumably those who were limiting their diets were Christian Jews. That's what most scholars think. In a setting where the church was sharing a meal, they were eating only vegetables because they couldn't be sure that the meat was what we would call kosher. And Paul doesn't consider that to be a big problem in and of itself. But they were judging others and trying to force these restrictions on the others. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. And somewhat understandably, though, this was difficult for the Jews to do, to change their ways. They had been told all their lives to eat certain things and to refrain from eating certain things. It was even difficult for the apostle Peter to... Uh, do this. He also clung to the ways of the Old Covenant until he was given a special revelation by God in the form of a vision. In fact, let's look at that passage because it's instructive. It underscores the concepts that we've been discussing about the gospel being open to all cultures and all peoples. Let's look at Acts chapter 10. We're going to read from a few verses before Peter's vision because the context of the whole thing is important. Let's read Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Quote, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who was called Peter. Now, maybe you're asking, Well, what does this have to do with the food laws and all that? Well, let's read on to find out. Let's jump down just a few verses later to verse 9 of Acts chapter 10. Here, now, we would expect to see an episode about the messengers coming from Cornelius to Peter because we just, you know, had this angel appear to Cornelius, you know, and said, hey, go to Peter. But instead, we're told about something that happened to Peter right around the same time that Cornelius saw his vision. Let's read... Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, quote, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Unquote. This was all kind of out of the blue for Peter. It's not like he had just had some dispute or something about kosher food or anything like that. Peter was just minding his own business, and he decided to go up on the roof and pray. And he sees that vision three times, as a matter of fact. Uh, for emphasis, I guess. God wanted to make sure that Peter got the message. So anyway, Peter's wondering, hey, why am I seeing this vision? What's that all about? So let's read on and find out. Let's read uh, now, skip down to verse 17 of Acts chapter 10. We'll be reading Acts 10, verses 17 through 23, quote. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests, So Peter goes with them to see Cornelius. And then a few verses later, we find out how all of this ties together. Let's read Acts chapter 10, verse Uh, verses 27 through 29, quote, While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection, unquote. Wow. So, Now we see how this all ties together. Peter, through the vision that he saw, was being prepared for the opening up of the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And the way he was prepared was through that vision where God effectively tells him, hey, no longer are the people of God to be separated from the rest of the world by their culture and by their food laws and that sort of thing. Those things are done away with in order that the gospel may be welcomed in all cultures and nations. And then God miraculously arranges things so that right after that vision, Peter is brought to Cornelius, the Roman soldier, who all his life sought to be godly. Another thing that we can learn from this episode is that I think we can infer at least one of the purposes of God in giving the Jews all of the food laws, etc. We can infer a purpose uh, for that. Before the time of Christ, God wanted the children of Israel to be separated, to be set apart from the surrounding cultures. God told the Jews through the law, you're not to mingle with them, you're not to marry with them, you're not even to eat with them. You're to be set apart from them. This kept them united as a people through the exile to Babylon, which was absolutely necessary because they were to return to the land after 70 years in Babylon. God didn't want them to blend in with the other cultures around them. So during, for instance, the Babylonian captivity, God didn't want them to blend in with the Babylonians and lose their identity as a separate culture, as the chosen people of God. And one way that this was achieved was through the food laws. An example of this is is Daniel. Uh, What's the first test that Daniel had after his exile to Babylon? Well, it concerned the food laws. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1 and see what happened. Here's some background. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and exiled the Israelites to Babylon. One of the first things that Nebuchadnezzar did was to choose some of the best and the brightest Israelites to work in his service. Let's see what happened. Let's read Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service, So, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best and brightest to serve him in the palace, and the king wanted these young men to blend in and become faithful Babylonian servants of the king. They were were to be trained in the language and literature of Babylon and, and to serve the king as Babylonians. Proof of this is that Nebuchadnezzar even changed their names to Babylonian names. Let's read Daniel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, quote, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego, unquote. This is essentially telling them, hey, you're no longer Israelites. You're Babylonian servants to the king. We're going to teach you the language and the literature of Babylon. We're, we're even changing your names. And, and you're going to eat our food and drink our wine. And now, what was it that kept Daniel and the others separated as a unique set of people? Let's read on. Uh, here's what it says in Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Quote, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Isn't that interesting? It was the food laws that kept Daniel and the others from blending into the culture. The king's servant wanted to force Daniel and the others to eat the food because he was afraid the king would get mad if he didn't. But Daniel made a deal with the king's servant. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 1 verses 11 through 16, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead." Unquote. So I think we can see the, from this the importance and the role of the food laws in keeping the children of Israel separated as a culture. And this was extremely important before the time of Christ. The Jews had a very important job to do as far as God was concerned. Paul talks about this earlier in the book of Romans. Early in the book of Romans, Paul had told the Jews that they needed the salvation available through Christ. They weren't saved just because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, to begin chapter 3, Paul relates some objections in the form of questions that the Jews might have concerning his teaching. Uh, Let's read uh, some verses from Romans chapter 3. Let's read the first two verses. Here's what it says. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So, God had a job for the Jews to do. The primary reason we find here that the children of Israel were set apart all of these centuries as a culture is that they were entrusted with the very words of God. And because of that, it was necessary that they be separated from the other cultures in order that the teachings and the words of God would not be watered down, not be corrupted by the influences of the pagan cultures. They were entrusted with the very words of God. And so they were given these food laws, which seem to us as quaint and, and a bit nitpicky, but those laws served their purpose well. They played a major role, really, in keeping the Jews separated as a culture, so that the very words of God could be transmitted down through the ages to us. And this was necessary down the ages, until the time of Christ, it was necessary that We have all of the prophecies concerning christ and all of the laws of the sacrificial atonement concerning christ which are documented in the very words of god the hebrew scriptures what we call the old testament it was necessary that we have those writings so that when jesus the son of god came to earth we would know that it's him This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. We know this because he was prophesied in the writings of the Old Testament. But now that Christ had come, well, we don't need the food laws anymore. Uh, We don't need or nor do we want the people of God to be separated into a separate culture. We want the gospel of Christ to be preached to all nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, and cultures. So the food laws, which used to be extremely important tools in keeping the children of Israel separated from the other cultures, now after Christ, now they became barriers which could possibly hinder the spread of the gospel to all nations and cultures. And that's why God told Peter in a vision three times, kill and eat, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. And we see in the episode about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the food laws and the other laws concerning the unclean Gentiles, well, those were all done away with in order that the gospel may be more easily spread throughout the whole world. And Peter tells us this. Let's let's read again Acts chapter 10 verses 28 and 29. Quote, he said to Cornelius and the others, you are well aware that it is... Against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Doesn't it all make sense now? I mean, for me personally, this was always something that I didn't quite understand. Why were these dietary laws so important for so many centuries, and then all of a sudden dropped and considered all of a sudden uh, to be unimportant? Almost on a whim, it seemed. But here we have it. We have the wisdom of God's perfect plan throughout the ages. God knew what he was doing. By the way, Acts chapter 10, which contains this vision of Peter's and the preaching to the Gentile Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, uh, of course, follows Acts chapter 9. And what happened in Acts chapter 9? Well, in Acts 9, we have the miraculous calling of Paul, who would become the apostle to the Gentiles and who would really open up the gospel to the rest of the world. So really, starting with Acts chapter 9, we have the last phase of Jesus' last instructions to his disciples just before he ascended to heaven. Here's what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, quote, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." Unquote. Beginning with Acts chapter 9, Um, the preaching and teaching of the gospel of of Christ and the things of Christ began to be done to the ends of the earth as as Jesus directs. Not just to Jerusalem and not just to Judea and Samaria, but also to the ends of the earth. But alas... As we return to Romans 14, these dietary laws were kind of ingrained in the traditions and cultures of the Jewish Christians. And they they found that they couldn't just drop them, so they continued in them. And Paul says, well, that's okay. Do what your conscience tells you to do. Just don't judge others for not doing the same. Or as Paul says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 14, the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. But Paul seems to give the harsher rebuke to those who were treating the ones who didn't eat everything with contempt. First, he says in verse 1, quote, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And then down in verse 3, he says, quote, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Unquote. So there was blame to go around on both sides uh, for causing this dissension within the Roman Church. Paul goes on to speak about the observance or treating as sacred certain days. Let's look at verse five, Romans uh, chapter 14, verse 5. Quote: One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, unquote. There's a bit of disagreement about whether this passage is referring to the Sabbath. There are some scholars who say that Paul is only referring to uh, Jewish feast days and, and not to the Sabbath. But the most straightforward reading of this text is that Paul is, indeed, referring primarily to the Sabbath here. That's what comes to mind when you read this verse, right? I mean, one person considers one day more sacred than another. One day of the week more sacred than another. What what could that mean? But, you know, what could Paul be referring to except, you know, the Sabbath there? Paul here, in this passage, groups the keeping of the Sabbath in exactly the same category as the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Here's what he says in verse 6, quote, "Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God." Unquote. This connection is reiterated and even made more explicit by Paul in the book of Colossians. Let's read Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, quote, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day." And even from an Old Testament law point of view, this makes sense. Similar to the food laws. Just as we talked about before, the Sabbath law served to distinguish and separate the children of Israel from the surrounding cultures. I think it was a key element in preserving the national identity and culture of the children of Israel throughout the ages. To observant Jews, at sundown on Friday, everything shuts down and the families gather together to share that special Sabbath meal each and every week. It's really a beautiful thing which God established specifically for the children of Israel as part of the Mosaic Covenant. It served to bind them together, each and every family, and bind them together as the people of God, the chosen people of Israel. And the Sabbath was given specifically to the children of Israel. We're we're told this a number of places. Let's read one of them. Let's read Exodus uh, chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Quote, The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. It's part of the covenant with Israel, just like the dietary laws were. And as such, the Sabbath observance was never meant to be extended into the Christian era. It was a special gift. Given specifically to the children of Israel, and again, it truly was and is a wonderful gift to the Jews. As I said, it binds them together as as families, and also, but binds the families together as a as the chosen people. It's a beautiful uh, thing. For us as Christians, Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus said in Matthew five seventeen quote Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them unquote and and this is the case with the sabbath law jesus has fulfilled it in fact paul tells us that back in that passage in colossians that we just read let's read it again and continue on to on to the next verse we'll be reading colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 quote therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ, unquote. Paul says, the reality is found in Christ. The reality of the Sabbath is found in Christ. Well, in what way? Well, let's, uh, let's explore that. Jesus, in fact, tells us in the, in the Gospel of Matthew... Uh, that this is the case, but the message is kind of hidden because as we read our Bibles we have one of those unfortunate chapter breaks which kind of hides what's going on. The Sabbath, as we all know, was established by God to give His people rest. He create, God created everything in six days and on the seventh day God rested. And so in commemoration of that and also to give the children of Israel rest, God gave them the law of the Sabbath the gift of rest to his people. With that in mind, uh, let's read some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, it's a beautiful and precious passage. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus is speaking here. Here's what he says, quote, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unquote. It's a beautiful passage, and I consider it to be perhaps one of the most precious passages in the Bible. It's an invitation to rest by Jesus to all of us. In him, Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. This is our sabbath rest but wait a second you you know hey scott you may say wait a second jesus speaks of rest here but he doesn't say anything about the sabbath in this passage well that's true except wait this is where the unfortunate chapter break comes in that passage uh completes chapter 11 of matthew um And when we read this passage, since it comes at the end of a chapter, many times we'll just put the Bible down there because it's a beautiful passage. It's nice to end on a a, high note or whatever. And we kind of want to bask in that passage. So we put the Bible down and say, well, that's a good place to leave off. I'll continue tomorrow or whatever. But let's look at what follows that passage directly. Uh, Pretend the chapter break isn't there. Let's read. Let's read again Matthew 11, uh, uh, verse 29, and read all the way through to chapter 12, verse 1. Again, here's what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time... And this is connecting, you know, this is the beginning of chapter 12. And it's connecting to what Jesus just said, because it says, at that time. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And it continues. We miss this connection between this invitation uh, to find rest you know that we'll find rest in jesus the rest for our souls we miss we miss this connection to the sabbath because there's that chapter break there right? it kind of hides the fact that you know this ties this rest ties to the sabbath starting in chapter 12 we have this episode where jesus's disciples are picking grains on the sabbath because they were hungry and the pharisees rebuke them for that uh, and for time's sake we i don't want to go through All of that in detail but let's skip down to the conclusion of the matter in verse 8 and this is jesus himself speaking again matthew 12 verse 8 he says quote for the son of man is the lord of the sabbath unquote so clearly at least to me if we ignore the chapter break we have you know jesus statement that he would give us rest for our souls and then we have directly tied to that the fact that jesus is the lord of the sabbath Through Jesus and the rest for our souls that he provides, we enter into our Sabbath rest. The ultimate rest for our souls will actually come after this life, and through Christ we will enter that rest, but even in this life we can experience a taste of that rest through Christ. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 4, actually, which is a key chapter concerning the Sabbath uh, as as it relates to Christians. As we read the book of Hebrews, we have to keep in mind that the book was, was written for the Jews, for the Hebrews. It's a book whose purpose is to prove to the Jews, using their scriptures, that Christ is the Messiah and that Christ is their way to salvation. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author sets up an, an analogy of the children of Israel in the wilderness seeking to enter the promised land. He sets that up as an analogy of the Jews in the current time wandering in the wilderness of this earth, seeking to enter into the promised land of eternal glory after this life. The author in Hebrews chapter four cites uh, Psalm 95 in order to set up this analogy. And he says that Psalm 95 is really a warning for us today that In order to enter into our true and everlasting rest, we need to be obedient to the gospel message. We need to understand and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if we hold on to that faith, we will enter that rest. Let's look at Psalm 95, which is cited in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, because Psalm 95 really sets up this concept for us that our ultimate Sabbath rest is that through Christ we will enter into glory and find rest for our souls. Psalm 95 is really amazing because it has so much Christian imagery and clearly points ahead to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews doesn't cite the entire psalm. His citation starts in verse, five, uh, verse 7 of Psalm 95. But let's read the whole psalm so you can you know, see that the theme really of the entire psalm is salvation through Christ. And in the end, it's a warning to the children of Israel to not reject this salvation through Christ. Let's read um, Psalm 95. Quote, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Uh, this is so interesting, by the way. Right away we see this Christian imagery in Psalm 95, speaking of our salvation and even the rock of our salvation. You know, uh, who can that be except Jesus? Anyway, let us sing, you know, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. We'll continue. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Again, we have more Christian imagery there. Jesus, of course, is the good shepherd, and we are the people of his pasture. In John 10, verse 11, in fact, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Anyway, um, now we'll continue in Psalm 95. This is this is this starts the passage which is cited in the book of hebrews it's a warning to the children of israel who reject the good shepherd and the rock of their salvation if they do they're going to miss you know entering into the ultimate sabbath rest entering into glory with christ let's continue reading in psalm 95 quote today if only you would hear his voice The writer of Hebrews says that the word today, back in uh, verse seven of the psalm, is meant for the children of Israel, here and now. He says the psalmist wouldn't have said today if there wasn't a certain time when the children of Israel would be faced with a decision to make about their salvation, about entering into God's rest. The warning here is that they need to be careful that they don't act like the children of Israel who rebelled against God and hardened their hearts against God. And because of this, we're not able to enter into his rest as symbolized by entering into the promised land. Just as God says in the Psalm, they shall never enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews warns the Jews at the time he wrote the book of Hebrews. And, and, and he's, it's a warning really for Jews who live here and now for that matter also He warns them that the the same thing could happen to them. The children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness and rebelled against the Lord their Savior, uh, for certainly God was their Savior, He miraculously led them out of slavery in Egypt. Anyway, in the wilderness they rebelled, and so God in His anger said, They shall never enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't make the same mistake. Don't just assume that just because you're a descendant of Abraham that you'll enter into glory. You can't rebel against God and His Son the Messiah and expect to enter into glory. So now let's look at some passages from the book of Hebrews and see how this all ties together. Let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. This is just after the writer cites Psalm 95 and here as we'll see he uses it to warn the children of Israel and really us too not to reject the salvation offered through Christ. Here's what he says. Let's read Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 19, quote. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter his rest because of their unbelief. So you see here, The author sets up this analogy of the Jews at the time he was writing with the children of Israel back in the wilderness, and he warns them, hey, don't be like them, don't rebel against God, or you'll be kept from entering into his rest. Uh, The author of Hebrews goes on in in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's read those verses. Quote, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. Quote. And then, the author kind of sums it all up in verses 9 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let's read those verses. Quote, There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Unquote. The reason I bring all this up is to show that there's a lot going on with the whole concept of the Sabbath rest. It's much more than just a day that God set aside once a week so that we don't have to go to work. The Sabbath rest, as we, as we saw in uh, Psalm 95 and, and here in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the Sabbath rest points ahead to the eternal rest that we will have as we enter into glory through Christ. And more than that, we who are in Christ have already entered that rest. So then, though we Christians don't commemorate the Sabbath anymore, as I said, that was part of God's covenant with Israel, even though we don't celebrate the Sabbath each week anymore, yet there is a Sabbath rest for us. That's what the apostle is saying in Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10. Quote, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, even though we don't celebrate the Sabbath, yet there still is a Sabbath rest for us Christians. And what is it? Well, he tells us, quote, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his, unquote. Our Sabbath rest comes from entering into God's rest through faith in Christ. Just as Jesus himself said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, for our part, we just have to enter that rest and really bask in it, take advantage of it. In Christ, we can, even in the hustle-bustle of this world, we can enter into that rest. We just need to turn everything over to Him in order to take advantage of that rest. So even as we go about our business, and even maybe go to work on Sunday or whatever, and toil for our living all week or whatever, yet we can, as we do these things, rest in Him. Give it all over to Him. Depend on Him and His guidance through it all, and He will give you rest. That's His promise to us. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.